0: You are listening to the Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Micah Beckwith. Well, good morning, Life Church. How are you this morning? morning? Thanks for joining us. I'm Pastor Micah, I'm the Noblesville campus pastor, and it's so good to have you here. We are in our uh second samuel series right now going verse by verse through god's word and and uh if you were here last week you know that this is a uh this is a little bit of a pg-13 kind of message okay we're gonna be in a we're gonna be in a couple passages of the scripture here that that address some really heavy topics and we know the bible is there's there's graphic content in the bible so for some children in the room it may not be necessarily always appropriate uh, to, to have them in the room. But this passage is a little bit, I would say out of all the passages, this passage is probably a little bit more on the, the benign side. What we're gonna see here, though, in a few weeks, there's gonna be serious scenes of, of some heavy stuff. So uh, just know, as we dive into this, God, God's word is real. God's word addresses all the tough issues. It doesn't hold back. It speaks truth. And uh, I think for some reason in America over the last 50 to 60 years, the church has been lulled to sleep thinking that we don't need to address real issues in life and we can just kinda say, well, Jesus loves you and it'll be all good. That's not how God's church is designed to work. You are not called to be wussies. You're called to be bold, powerful, true speakers who understand the culture. The Bible talks about the sons of Issachar. When you go back and study the sons of Issachar, they knew the times and could interpret the times with godly wisdom. What we've lost in America is the ability to have the spirit of the sons of Issachar flowing in and out of our churches. And so we need to be people who know what's going on in culture, know how to understand what's going on in culture through a biblical worldview in the context of what God says about it. None of this takes God by surprise. What's happening all around us? We may say, oh my goodness, look what's happening. No, it doesn't take God by surprise. What's not happening is us saying, okay, Father, how do we respond and address what is happening all around us? That's the spirit of the sons of Issachar, and that's what we need to do. That's why we're diving into this passage the way that we are. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we will be diving into that passage here. But let me, uh, let me pray for us as, as we get in, into this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you're doing here uh, at Life Church, And God, we ask that as we look at the consequences of what sin brings upon us today, I pray that you soften our hearts, Lord. I pray that it is a spirit, not of condemnation, but Lord, but a spirit of conviction that leads to forgiveness through, through uh, just us laying out our sins before you through confession. Lord, we know that you have paid a great price for us. Uh, Lord, we also recognize that we don't always remember that price and we take it for granted sometime. And I pray today, everyone, Lord, listening, whether it's online or here in, here in the... The, the, the actual building, God, we, we all remember the sacrifice and the heavy price that you paid for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we saw that David had made a grave mistake. He was on the rooftop. The first verse in chapter 11, it says, and in the springtime, when all the kings go out to war, David stayed home. And he stayed home because things were good, Things were, were going the way that the, that the nation needed to go. At this point, David was probably 50 years old. He was at the height of his power. The, the kings around him feared him. They recognized who he was and the God he served. Israel was probably the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at this point. And David should have been out to battle, but he stayed home. He didn't go where he was supposed to go. And when he did that, it says he got up late. He was sleeping in. He was being lazy. He got up late and he went up to the rooftop and he looked out and on this rooftop, he created the first sin. He gazed. He didn't just glance. He gazed at a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who was taking a bath and he saw, he saw her. And then he called for her and then he slept with her. And then she conceived a child while her husband, Uriah, one of David's mighty men was out in the battle. And then David turns turns to a very, very dark side within his soul and he goes that path. Which is, which is crazy because two chapters before, chapters nine and 10, we see that David showed kindness. The theme of that was godliness. He showed kindness to Mephibosheth, the grandson of Jonathan, and then he reaches out to a foreign king in chapter 10 and he shows kindness, a godly a- attribute to these people all around him. He's living and walking a godly, godly life. And then literally in chapters 11 and 12, the same David turns to cunning, to killing and to cover up. How is it possible that a man after God's own heart could go from this godly side over here and then all of a sudden cunning, killing and cover up? I hope that this message more than anything is not a way to point to David as someone who fell, but it's a way for us to say, if David, a man after God's own heart, could fall into that that easily and that quickly, well, then we are the same. We are susceptible to doing the exact same thing. That's what I hope this message does. As I was preparing it, it was doing it to me. It was saying, man, Lord, protect me, guide me, help me to not fall into this. Because I know my heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, If David's heart could do that, my heart could do the same. Your heart could do the same. That's what this passage of scripture should always, when we go to it, should always remind us. It's like, without staying focused on Jesus, we will fall into cunning, we will fall into killing, and we will fall into cover-up. In some aspect, all three of those things will be happening in your life. Now, I told you way back at the beginning of 2 Samuel when we started, 2 Samuel is divided up into three basic uh, sections. You have chapters one through 10, are David's triumphs. He was honoring God. God protected him, raised him to power. He's now the king over all of Israel and Judah are united. He's at the height of his glory. Chapters 11 and 12, all all about David's transgressions. And then we're gonna see chapters 13 through 24. It's all about David's troubles. David's troubles because of his transgressions. In scripture, there there was an organization that did a study a few years back. They found that out of the great heroes of the Bible, the two thirds of them had a moral failing or failed in their calling the last one-third of their life. So that means if you're in the last one-third of your life, you need to take heart and be very careful. A lot of times at the beginning of your life, the beginning of what you're calling, what God has called you into, you know that it, unless God steps in, you won't be able to get past point A. So you're looking to Jesus. You're, you're calling on his name. You're saying, Lord, direct my steps, which is exactly where David was in the first part of his life. He runs out to meet Goliath. And what does he say? He says, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God of heaven's armies. He was focusing on the Lord. The Lord gave him great success. When he was running from King Saul, often he prayed, Lord, unless you deliver me from my enemies, I will die. He was constantly going back to the Lord. And now we find him at age 50. He's sitting in his palace, and the Lord is saying, David, it's springtime. All of your men are going to war. You're the king. You are the warrior king. You need to go with them. And what does David do? He stays back. He doesn't do what God is calling him to do. Why? Because he feels like he doesn't need to. It's good. Things are great. I can just chill. I can, you know, know, Frankie says, relax. That's what I'm going to do, right? You know? Just literally going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. Be careful, church. I would say that's the most—that's the most dangerous time of anyone in their life is when everything is going well. Look at the story of America. We saw the hardest time that we probably ever went through was in the early 1900s, called the Great Depression, which led into World War II. Very hard times. People didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They knew that their sons were off battling in Europe and people were dying. They cried out to the Lord. We won that. We saw the 50s, this incredible uh, just revolution take place where we became the most wealthy upon uh, belief type of nation that this, this world has ever seen throughout world history. The 60s then produced a complacency in the 70s and the 80s. And we've never now, we have a generation that's never had to work to get to where we are today. And what, what are you seeing? You were seeing the same thing. Oh, we're good. There is no God. We don't really need God. We can do it ourselves. Our money is really powerful. Our military is powerful. We can just chill and go on autopilot. And you're seeing the same thing happen to us collectively as a nation because we've forgotten God. David is in the place where he's forgetting God. And now we see that David's sin is going to find him out in this chapter. Now, you may be saying, well, man, Did David always was he always kind of this way? Like, was it just he was in the wrong place at the wrong time? I think 2 Samuel chapter 5 actually gives us a little bit of insight into David's weakness. We all have weaknesses and we all have strengths. David was women. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13, it says this after he left Hebron, David is now going to go to Jerusalem. He's now the whole the whole nation is coming into agreement with David as king. It says this, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now, in scripture, the authors hardly ever put concubines before wives. Wives were the respected class. Concubines were not the respected class. You would always write wives and then concubines. But in this passage, the author says, David took more concubines and wives, which is telling you right now that David had a lust issue. David had a woman issue. David saw beautiful women and wanted beautiful women. And just because David did it, I wanna make it very clear, God did not ordain men to have more than one wife, okay? Just because David and Solomon and heroes of the faith did something stupid doesn't mean that God is saying, it's okay to do something stupid, okay? He's not. What God is saying is he's saying, I can work through your stupidity, praise the Lord, right? Like everyone should say amen to that, you know, right? But it's not saying he's giving you a pass to go down that path. David took concubines and wives. Now, David should have known what God has said about this. Why? Because in Exodus, we see in chapter 17, if you ever want to know what makes a good leader, go to Exodus 17. Moses is told by the Lord what would make for good leadership. One of the the traits of a good leader is he, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate for himself large amounts of silver and gold. We see this as part of being a good leader. Don't take more than one wife. It gets a little little chaotic in your house if you have more than one. How many of you guys have more than one uh, wife right now and it's chaotic in your house? (laughs) I saw one hand go up, okay? (laughs) Ward, you and I, we need to pray together afterwards at the end here because you're... You're going wayward, man. Uh, So, uh, no, but yes, like we know, like God said at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, one wife for one man, one man for one woman, right? That's, That's what it was. Well, now we see that David, his chink in his armor or his gap in his armor, his weakness has now gotten the best of him. He sleeps with Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah. He then hears that Bathsheba is pregnant. He tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home to sleep with his wife, but Uriah won't do that because he's a man of integrity, and while his men are out battling the enemy, he said, I can't go and enjoy my wife. It would be not right for my men who are living in tents right now on the battlefield, which, by the way, king, that's where you're supposed to be yourself. And so Uriah doesn't go sleep with with his wife. So now David's thinking, oh no, everyone's gonna know that she just committed adultery with someone, and adultery, the sin of adultery in the Old Testament law is what? stoning it's death so now David's saying, what can i do so he sends uriah back to the front of the battle he tells joab his commander put uriah at the very front of the battle and then pull back and let him die david murders uriah now it's been almost a year at this point david then at the end of this at the end of chapter 11 he takes bathsheba to be his wife after uriah has passed away you know what he's doing in that moment he's saying to all of israel i care about my people, I care about Bathsheba, poor Bathsheba, her husband was killed, but you know what, as king, I will come to her rescue, you know what all of Israel would have been thinking at that moment, they'd be like, wow, David is, what a guy, what a guy, wow, David, you are so kind, you didn't have to take her into your palace, so now that she has provisions for the rest of her life, but you did, Jeez, David, you're a godly man, way to go, <laughs> Yeah, I know. We know the story, and we're saying, "Oh, David, you're gonna get butt kicking from the Lord here real quick, man. Like this is not gonna go well for you." David believes he's gotten away with all of his sins, and now a year has passed. Bathsheba is living in the palace, and now she has basically just given birth to a son. And there's a there's a proverb that I think all of us should be well aware of. It's Proverbs chapter five verse twenty one. It says this: "For a man's ways are before the Lord, uh, the before the eyes of the Lord." and he ponders all of his paths. You, you, God sees everything. God sees everything that you're doing in the secret closet that you have. That, whatever you think you're getting away with, God sees it. And the greatest characters of our faith have all forgotten that at one point in their journey. You are going to forget that at one point in your journey. Even Moses. Moses, when he was living in the palace of Pharaoh in Exodus two, we see this, that Moses goes out and he sees an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew. And Moses has realized that he is Hebrew. He gets mad. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to, to his people and he looked upon their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. What does Moses do? He looks this way and he looks that way is what scripture says. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Do you know what, what we often do? We look this way. No one's over there. We look that way. No one's over there, but we forget to look that way. (laughs) Moses did it. David did it. You and I can do it just as easily as they did it. Don't forget to look that way. And remember that there are people, there's somebody watching and his name is the creator of the universe and he sees it. What David is going to now step into, he's going to recognize that many, many others are going to be hurt because of what he did. Now remember when Uriah was killed, the Bible also said that other mighty men died with him It wasn't just Uriah. It wasn't just the house of Bathsheba that mourned the loss of a father and a husband. There were other men who now had widows and orphans because of David's sin. Also think about it from a national perspective. The Ammonites who were the enemies of Israel at the time, they now have a victory under their belt. They're now going to the other nations saying, we beat Israel in this battle. Israel's weakening. Israel's, they're they're falling. They're they're weak in this area and we can take them he's emboldening the enemy. One stupid mistake, one selfish sin, and it cost the lives of men, hurt families, and children, and possibly threatened national security because of one man's sin. There was a story, uh, if you remember uh, back in the 1980s, there was a televangelist, his name was Jim Baker. I've gotten to meet Jim and in the later part of his life. And, and Jim really, I, I think the Lord has, has redeemed him in a lot of ways, and, and he's uh, you know kind of set him back on a path. And, and, uh, but back in the 80s, Jim Baker was probably the most famous pastor in the world. He was a televangelist. He helped start TBN. Uh, he had a, uh, a, a facility in North Carolina called Heritage USA, and it was the second most traveled theme park destination in the world, second only to Disney in the 80s big time. His wife's name at the time was Tammy Faye Baker. And, uh, and they, they were the pastors to the presidents. Jimmy Carter called Jim Baker onto the Air Force One into the private quarters and would often ask Jim Baker for spiritual guidance. Ronald Reagan would do the same. President Nixon did the same. They would call Jim Baker and say, what do you think the Lord wants me to do in this situation? And Jim wouldn't give them godly vi- advice. Well, Jim, at the height of his success— about the time he was probably just over 50, he gets complacent. He ends up falling into sexual fail- failings. He has an affair. It comes out that he is, that he is, the, the, the finances of the organization are now under scrutiny. There's things that are going on that might be illegal financially. And all happened in the late 80s when all of this started coming out. Now, if you remember, in 1988, there was a presidential primary election going on. Ronald Reagan was giving up his, he, he had served for two terms. And we saw that in 1998, there were multiple candidates, good candidates. One of the candidates' name was Pat Robertson. You guys remember Pat Robertson? Pat Robertson was running for president of the United States. Pat loved the Lord. Pat had a very solid biblical worldview, in my opinion. Pat Robertson was doing really well in the polls, if you go back and look. And he was running against the vice president at the time, whose name was George H. Bush. And when the The moral failings of Jim Baker hit the headlines. Guess what happened to Pat Robertson's poll numbers? They started dropping because Pat and Jim worked together. They knew each other and people said, man, if Jim Baker could do this, I bet Pat Robertson's right there with him. Think about the possible direction that our nation now has shifted over the last 30 years because of one man's moral failings that caused the nation to possibly go down this path and now turn to go down this path. Imagine what would have happened if Pat Robertson was president in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Who knows where we would be? He, he might have, he the, the godly wisdom, the prayer that, was, that, he was, that he was calling into the White House. Now listen, say what you will about the Bushes, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't think George H. Bush was a, was a man of prayer necessarily. I think he was a man of his own logic. I don't see him in in his biography saying, we need to go to the Lord. If Pat Robertson would have been president, I bet there would be a lot more of that. We need to go to the Lord. Who knows what would have happened? In 1992, we may never have known Bill Clinton as president. If God was blessing a Robertson administration, the American people might have said, man, it's going really well under Pat Robertson. Let's keep going that way for another four years. You would have never known the spirit of Ahab and Jezebel coming into the White House. And that's what it brought. I'm going to tell you right now. That was the spirit of Ahab and Jezebel was all over the Clintons. Just go back and study their life. It parallels almost, almost exactly to Ahab and Jezebel. I'm, and I, I don't mean, I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying like, that's literally like, look at it. Modern day, spirit of Ahab and Jezebel right there. Look what it's done to our nation. I'm only telling you that to say many others were hurt and you yourself were probably impacted by that one man's sin and you would have, you're, and you, you would have never known. And now we see here in, in Israel, Now there's there's households who have lost fathers and husbands. There's a nation who's possibly going to now go down a different path, all because of one man's sin, and they don't even know about this man's sin yet. But who does? God. And in the book of Josephus, which is a historical account of all of these happenings in Scripture, Josephus, the, the historian, says that the Lord came to the prophet Nathan in a dream and told him what David had done. And that's where we pick it up here in 2 Samuel chapter. Chapter 12, verse one, and it says this, "'And the Lord sent Nathan to David, "'and he came to him and said to him, "'There were two men in a certain city, "'the one rich and the other poor. "'The rich man had very many flocks and herds, "'but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, "'which he had bought, and he brought it up, "'and it grew with him and with his children. "'It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup "'and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him.' This is a little weird. I get it. Okay. Like, so just like, but if you have a dog, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you guys are like, you call yourself like a a pet parent, right? Like a, like like you're a mom or dad to a dog, right? You guys are weirdos. All right. I'm just going to tell you that right now. All right. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was one of those weirdos too. Then we had real kids. So, uh, (laughs) no, but we had a dog named Max. And Max was with us for 11 years, one of the best animals ever. And, and, and you get the sense of that, man. They become part of the family. Well, that's what's happening here. This poor man has one sheep, one little lamb, and it's become part of the family. And then there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man then goes, and he's unwilling to take one of his own lambs from his flock. So, so he goes, and he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, how many of you have ever had someone come and take your dog and prepare the dog for someone else to eat? <laughs> oh, that's too far? Really? Like, <laughs> out, of all, out of all the things I've ever said, that's too far? Okay, right. Right, yeah. <laughs> never happened, but this is what's happening in this passage of Scripture right now, right? This is, there's a rich man. That wanted, he didn't want to use one of his own lambs. He wanted to use someone else's lamb, so he, he took the only lamb that this poor man had the sweet, sweet lamb, and he prepared it. Now, what Nathan's doing here, Nathan is, is, he's operating very, with a lot of wisdom, because if you go to, as a prophet, you have to remember, there's a reason they killed the prophets first, okay, like, because the prophets would always, and I, and I actually have the gift of prophecy a little bit, I'm like, oh, great, like, you know, like, the Lord is, you know, the Lord is, out of the fivefold ministry gifting, you have the prophet, the, the teacher, the evangelist, the pastor, and the apostles, Right? And we, all of us fall into one of those camps. God has given you a gifting in one of those camps. And it's funny, Nathan will always t- joke with me. He's like, well, you they, know, they did kill the prophets first, Micah. So just, uh, just be ready, right? Like, like thank you, Nathan. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, but, but if as a prophet, if you come into the king and you tell him something he doesn't want to hear, guess what the king's going to do? Right? king is not going to be happy about it. So he's got to come in with wisdom. So Nathan comes in. And he approaches David, and he appeals to the sense and to the compassion that David has as a little, or as he had as a little shepherd boy. David was a shepherd. He understands the love of sheep. He understands what a shepherd, how a shepherd cares for his sheep. And he knows that this is going to touch David's heart. And then David, in verse 5, it says this, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives... I swear on the name of the Lord. What he's doing, he's making a sacred oath in this moment. Okay, bad idea, Nathan, or bad idea, David. He's making a sacred oath with the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, I want you to know right now, according to the Old Testament law, David just made a big mistake. He should have known what the law says. David made an unjust ruling. The Old Testament law does not, in any way, shape, or form, issue a death sentence for someone stealing a lamb. Now, as bad as it was, as bad as it was in this this poor man, it did not require a death sentence. But the king goes above and beyond God's law and says, I'm gonna demand even more from this. That's unjust. No more, no less, that's just. David's going a step further you go back to Exodus 22, it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one ox and he shall repay four sheep for one sheep. So that's why David says the man deserves to die and he's going to pay back four sheep. So he understood David knew the law. He obviously did because he said it's four sheep that this man knows, but he goes a step further and he adds on more law to God's law, which is a big no, no, you do not do that. But what David is doing, he's falling into the same trap that Pharisees and hypocrites always fall into. They see the sins of others, and it looks way, way worse. It looks way worse than your own sins. How many times have you been able to point to somebody else's sins very quickly, but sometimes it's hard to see your own sins? <laughs> Amen, I mean, that's me, that's you, that's all of us. This happens all the time. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter seven. He says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Now. Pause for just a second. This is the most quoted verse by non-Christians everywhere, okay? Like, just so you know. Judge not lest you be judged. It's like, great, they've been studying Scripture, right? Like, they know, that's step one. They know, they know Matthew 7, verse 1. Now, Jesus is not saying you can't judge, because he goes on and he says this, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you too will be judged. He's not saying you can't recognize sin. Like, I can go up to an apple tree and recognize that it's an apple tree by the fruit that it's bearing. I can go up to a sinner or someone who's, who's drastically living a life far from God and say, I recognize the fruit of your life is not godly fruit. That's okay, that's not, that's not, there's no condemnation there. It's just saying I recognize, I discern what's going on. Jesus is saying, don't condemn. You do not have the right to condemn but remember when you judge somebody when you look at somebody and you apply a standard of goodness and holiness to their life you better too be living by that same standard because the hypocrites were doing this or the the pharisees were doing this all the time and then jesus says and why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own right it's like hey buddy like that's a big speck right there they're like yeah well, that's a big log in your own eye man like you know Why don't you take care of that? He says, how can you think of going to your friend and saying, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't even see past the log in your own eye? And then Jesus says, now Jesus was a name caller. Okay, just get over it. He was. He points to the Pharisees and he says, hypocrites, hypocrites. That's who you are. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So he's saying there's a time and a place, an appropriate manner to call out the speck in your friend's eye, but first deal with your own crap. And don't come and start preaching to everyone when you yourself are living in that secret sin. And you'll find in a lot of times, and this unfortunately in the world of pastoral leadership, some of the most uh, biggest moral failings of pastors that have happened throughout the years are the same sins that they themselves have been preaching against and railing against from the pulpit for many years, probably out of a sense of conviction, like probably out of a sense of they're feeling a little shame they're probably trying to overcorrect and go further so that they can absolve themselves of their own sin, if you will. But that, we find that often within the pastoral leadership. But again, it's that, it's that whole mindset of, I can see the other person's sin, but it's a hard time for me to see my own. Now, David under Old Testament law should have known that adultery and murder, those are punishable by, by death. And what did David do? He was an adulterer and he was a murderer. He should have been punished by death. And then Nathan said, the big zinger right here, David, you are that man. Boy, I wish. I mean, this may sound bad. I, I like David and I don't, I don't wish anybody ill, but I would love to see David's reaction. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that encounter. To see what David would have done in that moment. I, I have to imagine David, you know, it's been a year. I think David thought he got away with it. I have to imagine his face just turned dead white. I have to imagine the blood, just, just the adrenaline and everything just sort of began to run like, like crazy. I have to imagine that David stepped back and said, oh oh no, what have I done? I have to imagine that David probably recognized that he just issued a death decree on his own life. What is gonna to happen to me now? I just, I just sealed my own death sentence. And then Nathan goes on, he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of all of Judah. And if it were too little, David, I would have added to you as much more. He's He's saying, David, if you wanted more, if you were lacking something, if you saw Bathsheba and wanted more beautiful women, like you, all you had to do is ask me. All you had to do is just come to me. I would fulfill, I would give you what you would, what you would want. But you had to take matters into your own hands. Now, I'm not saying the Lord would have given David more beautiful women just because, but Dave, he would have directed David's heart and he would have fulfilled David with godly things. But he says, David, you wanted more? Just ask me. You had to step outside of my, my authority. You had to go take and steal and kill and destroy. Who, who is the author of killing, stealing, and destroying Satan. You You had to operate and mimic the evil one. David, what have you done? Why have you despised the word of the Lord, David, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now remember, a lot of times people will say, "Well, David didn't actually technically kill Uriah." No, he did. He did. Yeah, the Ammonites are the ones that stuck the sword through Uriah, but it was David who authored it all, and God is going to hold David responsible for his murder. This is this is called authority. Men, I'm going to speak to the men in this room right now. When you stand before the Lord someday, and He says, "How did you steward your family and your children?" You're not going to be able to say, "Well, my wife," "Well, my school," "Well, the church." Well, the, my kids' friends, they were the ones that, that led them astray. They were the ones that, and the Lord's going to say, why are your children not here with you? Why, what What is that, like, where was your responsibility? And you're not going to be able to say this. The Lord is going to say, no, tell me what you did. Now, there is free will with your children. So parents who have children who've walked away from the Lord, I'm not saying that you caused that to happen by doing or not doing something. They also have a responsibility But you wanna be able to stand before the Lord and say, I trained them up in the way that they should go. I instilled God's word in their heart. We fought hard for them through prayer. We stood strong and fast on the word and the truth of God. If they walk away from the Lord and you've done all you can do, God's going to say, you did what I asked you to do. And then he's gonna deal with them. But if you think that it's your wife's job or your school's job or your church's job or the friends of your children's job to raise up your friends, he's not going to absolve you of that responsibility just because someone else made a bad choice. He's going to do what he's doing with David right now. He's going to say, it was you, David. I'm holding you responsible, even though the Ammonites are the ones who actually ran the the sword through Uriah. God is a God of authority. God is a God of responsibility. He gives us personal authority, personal responsibility, and he says, how are you going to use it? Do you don't believe me? Just go and look at the parable of the talents. The master gives talents to different different servants that he has, and one doesn't steward it well at all. And look what the master does in that story. It's a a pretty pretty intense story, and the master is not happy with the one who does not steward the responsibility. Verse 10, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. The consequences of your action, David, you will never ever have peace in your house. It will be a house of calamity. That is a, that is a, as a parent, as a father, that would be heartbreaking for me to hear that we always pray at our house, Lord, let your spirit fill our home. Let your peace cover our house. You want your house to be a house of peace. You want your house to be a respite. You want your house to be a place where people feel the safety and security of God Almighty. And when this sentence comes down to David, the Lord is saying, I'm removing peace from your house. You will fight now with your children. The children will fight against you. It will be constant battles within your house. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to give I am going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Jeez. Lord's not messing around. Okay, just FYI. If you think God messes around, just read this. He doesn't mess around. What is this referring to? David's son, Absalom, in a few chapters, in chapter 15 and 16, you're gonna begin to see the rise of Absalom. At the the height of Absalom's leadership, he goes against David. He runs David out of the kingdom. And then he has an advisor that tells him, Absalom, what you need to do to show all of Israel that now Israel is in your your control, you need to take the wives and the concubines of David and you need to sleep with them in, in broad daylight so all of Israel can see that you are the alpha male. So Absalom goes up on a roof And he does this for all of Israel to see. Now, where did David's sin start? On a roof. And it comes full circle with Absalom saying, I'm taking all of what David has on a roof. You see how sin, and please hear me, this is not God's doing. This is not God's, this is God just stepping away from David. God does not cause sin to happen. But when God's presence and his hand pulls off of you, guess what happens? Boom, 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 boom. The enemy starts taking shot after shot after shot, and there is no protection. God wants to protect every single one of us, but if we step outside of his umbrella, he cannot protect us. There are things God cannot do, and he will not go against his word, and he does not bless sin. And if you're living in sin, he will not be able to bless you the way that he wants to bless you, and he will not be able to protect you the way that he wants to protect you. It'll break his heart as your father in heaven. He loves you dearly. And it'll break his heart to see where you're going through. But he will pull himself away if you want him to. If you step out of him, out of, out of alignment with him, he will say, all right. And that's what's happening with David. He's saying, David, this is what is going to happen now because you just stepped out of alignment with me. Get ready, buckle up. You did this in secret, David, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. There's a saying, and it goes like this: God sees all. But we also we often forget that, that God sees all. <laughs> the Bible says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses as well. There are people who have gone before us who are watching you and I. Now I don't know how that works. I, I don't I really don't like you know, sweet Auntie Mary that died, you know, you know, 20 years ago that that thought I was the most perfect, you know, nephew that she had, right? I don't know if she's watching now and be like, oh my goodness, Micah, I have never in a million years thought you were this bad, right? Like, I don't know how that works. I'm not sure if they're watching and they see everything the way that God sees it, but I'm going to tell you right now, God sees everything. And the Bible does say we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 4.13 says this, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the saying that I was mentioning a little bit earlier, there's there's a saying, it says, Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Now, I can only imagine, like, whenever you see scandalous things happening in our culture, you're usually at the The Kroger. You go up to the the checkout line. You see the National Enquirer. So I'm thinking that Gabriel's up in the Kroger in heaven. He's going through the national through the checkout line. Michael tells Gabriel, "Hey, do you see the National Enquirer down on earth here? Do you see what Micah did earlier?" It's like Gabriel's like, "Oh man, well you, Michael, you can't believe all that stuff. Like that's you know, who knows like if that's actually even true." That's where my mind goes. That's where my mind goes. This is, why, this is why I still need to mature more before I really become a pastor. But, 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 that's, but that in, in some, some sense, in some form, that's true, right? Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God sees what you're doing. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is the part of scripture where David begins to pen the famous passage in Psalm, Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. It came at this very moment in David's heart. We said, oh my goodness, what have I done? And I love this passage. This verse is so interesting because David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Immediately Nathan's response is the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Whoa, what? What excuse me? That that, that quickly? This is how the Lord works. This is how, this is how confession works. It took David a year to come to this point, but he finally came to it when he recognized his error and the, the, and the sin in his life and he says, "I have sinned against the Lord." And literally forgiveness came the moment he said the confession. the moment he laid his, his sin out and said, "Lord I've, I've, I've wronged you." Nathan instantly comes back and says, "The Lord has removed your sin from you, you're not going to die there's forgiveness." and there was mercy, because God really should have said, David, you're the one who decreed your death, and I'm going to honor that decree of the king, and he says, no, I'm going to step in, David. Now, remember, King Saul, King Saul, we saw the, just the implosion of King Saul. Well, what's the difference between Saul and David? They both murdered. They both did wicked things in the eyes of the Lord. They both made huge mistakes. The difference is this verse right here. I have sinned against the Lord. I am sorry. I can't. And, and repenting, an actual genuine repentance. This is not just lip service. This is, I am wrong. And instantly forgiveness came because of the confession, because of the repentance. John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just, that means God is just. That means he cannot allow sin in, your pres- in his presence. He has to deal with sin. And the cost of sin is death. It always has been. It always will be. But he's faithful. But how does it work? How does it work? We're going to dive into that in just a second as we wrap up this service. But remember, God will forgive you of your sins if you are confessing those sins to him. No matter what you've done, you might have come in here and said, Pastor Mike, if only you knew. I don't have to know because I know what David did. I know what Moses has done. I know what Peter did. I know what... Mary Magdalene did. I know what all of these people in scripture have done, these champions of our faith, and yet God forgave their sins and then used them in a powerful way. Wherever you are, wherever you have come from, wherever you're, whatever your past, is, whatever's in your past, remember this, God will use you if you just come and lay your sins before him. Now it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for your sins, there certainly will be. Your actions have consequences. In 2 Samuel, the last verse here in this passage as we're going to wrap up, it says this. Nathan goes to David and says, but because by you doing this, you have shown utter contempt to the Lord, the son born to you and Bathsheba will die. There are consequences. I'm not here to say that just because you ask forgiveness from the Lord, he makes it all go away. No, he makes your sin go away, but the consequences of your action will still unfold. Guys, the whole point of this message is to remind us that sin is really, really, really expensive. There's a high price. Whether it's a small sin or a big sin, it doesn't matter. It costs blood. It costs bloodshed. I was talking to someone this week and they were saying, you know, and they're, and they're not really walking with the Lord. And they said, you know, I've never heard pastors address Leviticus 20 in our culture anymore, where it says talks about the sin of homosexuality. and and the sin of homosexuality in the Levitical law demands death. It demands, it demands stoning, just like adultery, just like murder, just like other sins do. But if you commit that sin, you, it's required. There's bloodshed that needs to be required. And he said to me, he said, no church is ever going to address that. No pastor is ever going to say that because it's so politically incorrect. And I said, oh, no, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> But, I said, but then I said, what you don't recognize is that sin, to this day, still requires bloodshed. God didn't change, he didn't change the rules. it hasn't, the Old Testament and New Testament are one, but it's one Bible. But the bloodshed that was required, guess what? It was supposed to be your blood, it was supposed to be my blood, but guess what happened? Jesus stepped down from his throne and glory and said, I love you too much to allow you to go through this. I'm going to give of my own blood for you. This is the story of the gospel. Leviticus 20:13 still stands. It absolutely stands. When people take part in sin like that, there is blood that is required. But praise God, it's not our blood. It's the blood of the pure spotless lamb, the son of God, the God. What other God in history has stepped off of his throne to rescue those who are supposed to serve him. And not only that, has stepped off his throne and given of his own life. What other God? You point point to another religion where that God has done that. There is none. That's the story of the gospel. That's, this is not a, this is not religion, guys. Christianity is not religion. Christianity is a relationship with a God who has given up his blood to pay the high price for your sin so that you can have eternal life forever and ever. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we see the price of sin. When God tells Adam, he says, you see that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You must not eat of that tree for if you do, you will certainly die. God said, sin requires death as the price. Romans 6 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. And God saw us living in our depravity and the Trinity, I can just imagine the conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say, oh, I love them so much. We're not gonna let him stay there. Philippians 2.7 says this, be as one mindset as Christ Jesus was, and it talks about what Jesus did on that very first Christmas, very first Christmas night 2,000 years ago. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, being God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't say, I'm God, I'm going to use it for my own advantage. He said, I'm going to step off my throne in glory. I'm going to go to Bethlehem. I'm going to take on the form of a servant. He made himself as nothing, taking on the very nature of the servant, being made in likeness, human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself unto death, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Why death? Because that was the price of sin. It's always been the price of sin. Old Testament, New Testament, nothing has changed other than Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, gave his blood to cover you. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans six twenty three. 23, I, I said the first part of that verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, is that, is that your story here today? Have you... Have you recognized the sin in your own life? Have you called on the blood of Jesus to cover you? Have you asked Jesus to, to come into your life and for God the Father to forgive you by, by the blood, by covering you in the blood? Because if you don't have the blood covering you and you have to stand before a holy God someday, it's not gonna go well with you. I think of, I think of Jimmy Buffett. He just passed away. Now, I, don't, I, don't know, I, I don't know what his faith background was. I, I don't. And again, I I never really heard him talk about faith, so I'm guessing he didn't really have a faith. But he passed away just a couple days ago. This guy who lived seemingly a great life on this earth, millions and millions of dollars to his name, had all the luxuries of this earth, and now he's standing before the judgment seat of a holy God. What is he going to do if he doesn't have the blood of Jesus covering him? He's going to say, well, I'm a good guy. I, I, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't murder anyone. And the Father is gonna look and say, but you sinned and the cost of sin is death. And he said, my son gave up his life for you, but you refused to cover yourself in his blood. I can't have anything to do with you. Depart from me, I never knew you. And that's gonna break the father's heart every single time. It's not his will that any should perish, but have, everyone should have an everlasting life. But people walk away from him. What I'm saying here today, don't walk away from him. Don't let it be your blood to pay for your sin when God has given his very best so that you don't have to go through that. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church podcast.